Show number 73 of Look at His Butt, LT and JK Talk Trek. Welcome to episode 73. Yes. Currently in progress, we are watching the remastered Squire of Gothos, and we will be doing our commentary during the commercial breaks. Go, Lena. Um, there was a bit of a confusion as to whether this was going to be on because the stupid fucking directory online wasn't telling us. And in fact, the directory on the television set wasn't telling us if it was going to be on. So there was last minute confusion, but it was on. It was on. And so we have our popcorn. So, and as I said, we're watching Squire of Gothos. So we saw the teaser, um, in which everybody was drinking coffee for no reason. Space coffee and space space coffee. We figured it must have been because, like, on the ship's time, it was 4 o'clock in the morning and everybody was really tired or something, but they were drinking them out of space cups. And we got to see a really good Shatner swallow, which made me very, very happy. And he looked gorgeous. Oh, he looks fantastic. His toupee is fabulous. It's sort of sun-streaked. And it doesn't look greasy or anything. It's very natural, and it kind of falls across. He looked kind of tan. So I'm thinking that this must have been early, Mm -hmm. second season maybe. I don't really remember. Um, I don't think it's second season. There's no Chekhov. Oh, that's right. That's true. this first season. Well, he looks really good, and he looks really fit and in shape and everything at the same time. Just beautiful. So we saw that, we saw the credits, and then we've seen about half of the first act, and it seemed like a very artificial commercial break that they just yes. threw in here. So that was definitely a syndication thing. So now they're down on the planet and um, have come across the waxworks figures, it seems, of Kirk and Sulu, who got transported down from the ship. Not to mention the salt vampire. The salt vampire, and we just figured out that they are actually in the monkey's pad. Yeah. Because it looks just like it. Yep. Slightly decorated a little bit differently, but it is the monkey's pad. And um, Kirk and Sulu, when they're the wax figures, are lit green, and I don't think they, I think that's one of the remastering things. Mm -hmm. I don't think they were green in the original. I really don't remember. The one, um, the ship shot that we saw of it orbiting the planet looked really nice. Mm -hmm. They put a lot of work into that. It was very detailed, and that was cool. I'm trying to remember what other special effects are in this that they could possibly have done something spanking with. Spanking list. There's a spanking list there's in the teaser. There's a spanking list, yeah. That so was there's good. a Shatner swallow and a spanking list. Uh-huh. And space coffee. And space coffee. And and Spock got to yell in that pseudo-military uh-huh. fashion that he has. Yes, so we know we're in first season. That's he true. He never good. did that later no, on. You're right. You're absolutely right. Yep. Um, so I don't even remember what happens next in this episode. I do, but I'm not going to tell you. Okay. Uh, because it's just too exciting. <laughs> and I don't want to spoil it for you. No, well, um, we did point out quite a while ago that the, the frock coat that Trelane is wearing was actually worn by Mike Nesmith in a Monkeys episode, and someone had done a side-by-side comparison, and it is, in fact, exactly it is, the same. It film. is, yep. it is. It is so amusing. Do we know which was filmed first? The Monkeys or this? I think the Monkeys. I think the Monkeys was. Yeah. I think so. Okay, oh. it's back on. Okay, next segment. Okay, they got down to the planet. Mm-hmm. They met Trelane. Mm-hmm. Um, Kirk and Sulu were released from greenness. And they're interrogating Trelane. But here's the thing. They're saying that um, they're 900 light years from Earth. Mm-hmm. So he's been studying Earth, not knowing he was seeing them 900 years ago. Mm-hmm. What era do you think he was looking at, approximately? Oh. From his costume and everything else? Um... At post-Renaissance, I mean, it seems like Enlightenment, sort of. Yeah, so like about the 1700s? Yeah, 1700s. So this was made before they had come to the, the to mm-hmm. the executive decision that TOS takes place in the 
second, 23rd century? 23rd, isn't it? Yeah. Because yeah. 900 years from that would be like 2,600, 2,700. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. See, I was doing my math. That's very good. Uh, it is interesting that they put that actual science in there, though. That was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And I think I remember um, when this came out that... Um, it was one of the few that had an actual sort of real science thing in it, as opposed to warp speed, which is a fake science thing. You're kidding. <laughs> I'm crushed. So, um, DeSalle does something really stupid. He tries to shoot him with a phaser while the guy's looking in the mirror so that he can see oh, DeSalle doing this. Really? That was very silly. So, uh, so far, this has all been set up. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't actually gotten to any plot yet, and we don't know why Trillian's keeping them there. I have to say, William Campbell is just so good. Oh, he he's is. such a good actor. And I was noticing on this um, how good he is at listening when Kirk is talking to him. Um, he's not just standing there. He's, like, reacting to everything that Kirk is saying, and different emotions are playing across his face, and mm-hmm. you can see him thinking about what he's going to say next. Yep. Really, really well done. Yes. He's very good. He makes this episode, really. He does. Now, when I was... Um, when. I was, the first time I ever saw this episode was probably when it was in reruns, and I was with my brother, and I remember we thought he was Liberace. (laughs) He acts like Liberace. He acts like Liberace, and he's playing a Uh keyboard instrument, and we were, we We referred to this as the Star Trek episode with Liberace in it. that's so funny. (laughs) He he does. He does totally over the top, but but in a very um, controlled way. I mean, he's Mm -hmm. not out of control. That's the thing. No, no. And it's, (gasps) we're back. We're back. I would be really happy if we spent this whole segment talking about how beautiful Bill Shatner is. <laughs> He's gorgeous in this. You know what I was noticing is when he comes up with his little plan and mm-hmm. is talking to Spock and McCoy and they do a close-up mm-hmm. of him. And he's like pleased with himself so he's not really smiling. But you can see the crinkly lines around his eyes. And those just like oh, totally do it for me. Oh my me. god. He just looks so good. He's, and he's showing package. He def- and his butt looks so good in that last shot. Oh. It had its own key light. Yes. Well, as it should. <sighs> really wonderful. Um. One of the things I like in this segment is when Trelane calls Spock ill-mannered. That's always cracked me up. So maybe not everyone thinks Spock is a lovable sidekick. <laughs> also, we're noticing that um, Uhura's eyebrows were... Oh, they look so weird. ...drawn on with a huge, thick piece of chalk. Yeah. Or, or, or somebody dipped their finger in something and went whoosh over her eyes because... They don't look very That good. was very strange. Also, at one point, we thought McCoy had his hand in his pocket. Yeah. But it turned out he was resting his hand on his tricorder. It was a weird weird camera angle. It was sort of shot from below. Mm -hmm. And he was sort of three-quarter in profile. So it was sort of hard to see what was going on there. But um, so the plot so far is that they're they're now... um, they had gone back to the ship, but now they're all back down on the planet. Trillane dragged them back down there. And, and they have Spock with them now. They have Spock, and they've got some other people, including Uhura and the blonde yeoman lady. That I Teresa. Teresa Ross. Is that what he said? I think that was oh. it, yes. Um, and Kirk has just slapped Trillane across the face with a lady's glove and challenged him to a duel. That was quite a loud slap noise for a glove. For a glove, yeah. It sounded like... Um, the Hollywood meat slappers. You know, they, <laughs> this was on Mystery Science Theater one time where they did a whole um, host segment about Foley artists and the things that they used to right. make noises. And they were demonstrating. We're oh, back. oh, sorry, we're back. I'll continue this in a moment. Okay, so to continue the meat slapper thing, they're doing this thing on MST, and the way that they demonstrated how they make when people slap each other or punching noises is that they had 
two um, the wooden things from paddle paddleball games, mm-hmm. and they had taken big stakes and and like tied the stakes to them, and then they slapped them together. Slap, slap, <laughs> and it does. It, that's the sound that it makes. So those are Hollywood meat slappers. <laughs> so that's the, what when you have to make the sound of somebody slapping someone. Slap, slap. Well, speaking of sound effects, in this segment, <laughs> when. Kirk shout out Trelane's power, yeah. and so the fire died, the lights go down. It was a really funny noise. It, it was. was uh, it was a slide whistle. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Very Warner Brothers. It was. It was really funny. Um, this segment started with one of those mysterious mental captain's <laughs> logs that could not possibly have been yeah. uh, recorded. He was just sitting there. He said, wait a second, I have to do the captain's log. Think, 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 think. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> yep. Um, also... Trelane says to them, you're all dead men, especially you, Captain. <laughs> and all I could think of was the mayor of the Munchkin City, or the coroner, who says, yes. she's really quite sincerely really dead. dead. Yes. Not merely she's dead. definitely dead. Um, you saw some underwear. I was looking at his hair. Yeah, when um, they were they got back. At, this was an episode where they were back and forth and back and forth between the planet and the I ship. always forget how many times they do that. It was like a that. shuttle bus. And so um, they, they get back up to the ship, and then Kirk decides he's going to go back down, and he kind of storms up the stairs, and his black T-shirt got pulled up a little in the back. You could see the top mm, of his underwear. How exciting. Also, this had a great moment where he gets really mad at Trelane. Oh, yeah. And he purses his mouth together just like he does before he yells, so that was that was like a little um i don't know foreshadowing of 20 years later he was about to call him a pompous ass but he just got out the word pompous yes because you couldn't say ass on tv at that time and you pointed out that this was using another set from the monkeys (laughs) there was a new monkeys episode where um um there was a trial and it was exactly the same it was this sort of very um artificial (gasps) we're back it's back we'll tell you what happens Mm, toasty all right, more of those Hollywood meat slappers. Oh, <laughs> really? He slapped Trelane. Bat, bat. That was really fun. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, let's see. Notes from this. Well, you noticed that it looks like Trelane's shirt is on backwards. I think it really was. You know, I looked at it again while he was wearing it, and the buttons were right up the back. Well, I think. I mean, that I, was intentional. You think so? Yeah, it wouldn't fit the same if you put it on backwards. Yeah, I guess so. It just looked weird to me. Um. Yeah. Well, the green pants. I don't remember Trelane's uh, pants being bright, bright green. Yeah, well, maybe. But. Yeah. The, the restoration made them look more green. Yes. But, oh, he was showing. Definitely. And that really made me wish Kirk was always <laughs> wearing bright green pants instead of black, which, you know, makes it a little trickier yep. to, to pick up these things. But. You know, we've talked about how Kirk seduces everyone and Mm -hmm. flirts with everyone. It was wonderful when he was proposing to Trelane a personal Mm -hmm. conflict. Oh, absolutely! He was being total charm and hotness, and he he moved in close. He did. He lowered his voice a little bit. Yeah, Uh, that was very sexual. Yummy. Very. Um, when the the fight starts, the the hunt, butt shot. He does a somersault. He gets (laughs) dirt on it. Oh. Man. And then he's just running around and showing his butt and mm-hmm. fighting and jumping. And, and he does that great thing where, where Trelane's kind of looking around for him and he, he, he runs in and he grabs the tree branch and swings on the branch. Yeah! And the sword out of his hand. <gasps> oh, Bill loves doing that. Action sort of Kirk. Stuff. Action mm-hmm. Kirk. Action Kirk. Now, you pointed out that um, he calls the Enterprise by saying Captain to Enterprise yeah. instead of it's Kirk like, to What's Enterprise. up with that? I <laughs> don't know. very weird. Um. So, in case you never saw this, uh, Kirk wins. 
Of course. <laughs> of course. And the voices of the parents of Trelane, yeah. which are just lights in the sky, uh, the mother's voice is Barbara Babcock, yes. who's in a couple other and episodes. That, it's very easy to recognize her voice. She's got a very distinctive voice. I don't know what the hell that was for. <laughs> <laughs> I know. They just showed this very weird shot, but I don't think it ever appeared in the show. No. Um, and the man's voice, I have heard, is James Doolin. Yeah. I, well, he did a lot of the voices. Right. Um, those kind of alien voices, and I think he just was a voice guy, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you're right. It didn't sound like him at all, but I think it probably was him. Also, um, I like at the end when Kirk is doing his little speech about little boys playing tricks yeah. like dipping pigtails in inkwells. Like, yeah, they were still doing that when Kirk was a boy. Yeah, like he wouldn't but, even know what that meant. <laughs> but I love how Spock looks truly alarmed. <laughs> Not just puzzled, but worried by this whole conversation yes and then i gotta point this out the very last shot of the episode before they they go to the shot of the enterprise uh-huh. pulling away and they're showing credits over it mm-hmm. so there's like a split second where you can see it without uh gene Coon's mm-hmm. name over it there is a profile of kirk that's just as you said the camera broke or retired or something oh my god he looked amazing so very good oh so this is a really good episode, despite the lack of EVE mm-hmm. and Rip Shirt. Yeah. But, oh, he is so beautiful in this. Now, I'm remembering that in the uncut syndicated thing, there was a little more with Ahura, and I can't remember what it was. And then there was a little bit when they came back to the Enterprise, um, when, when they're down there with everybody, uh... Trillane changes the blonde yeoman into, he changes her clothes into this Frenchy outfit looking thing. And then I seem to remember that when they came back to the ship, there was like, Kirk says, go change to her or something like that. Yeah, he does. And it's not in this. No, it's not in this. But I I was kind of waiting for that and then it didn't happen. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. Um, But there wasn't anything else I remembered that that was cut. There is, um, there was a cut in there that was really obvious to me and I can't. Now I can't remember. I should have made a, mm. a note on it, but there was a a, a cut somewhere. But yeah. um, and as far as the special effects and stuff, the only other stuff I noticed was in the um, the other uh, ship shots and the planet mm-hmm. shots. It looked really good, and that was nice. So, and then you pointed out when they're trying to run away from the planet, there's a shot out the rear the rear window. <laughs> Yeah, and you can see the, the ship's nacelles on either side. And it it looks, looks really strange. A little silly, I would say. Just but that's like silly. a feature we have in cars now. Yeah, yeah. That you can watch it on a yep. screen because apparently the rearview mirror is not effective enough or something. So that was pretty amusing. But this is a great episode. It was really good. Now, I wanted to mention something. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm now looking at the Memory Alpha website, which has a lot of really great Trek information. So there's a summary about Trelane and what happens in that episode. So I will read the part at the end. Excuse me. Despite the power at his disposal, Trelane made rather significant mistakes, suggesting great immaturity or a relatively poor or basic education. This is consistent with his parents' references to him as a child. The vast powers at his disposal were therefore likely to be insignificant compared to what the adults of his species could accomplish. His instruments and even his planet of Gothos were little more than toys by their standards. 
fans have long speculated about a link between between Trelane and Q. Mm-hmm. And author Peter David even wrote a novel called Q Squared, predicated on this notion. However, no canon evidence exists to support this theory. Indeed, if Trelane is a member of the Q continuum, then he is at least 10,000 years old, as dialogue in The Q and the Gray indicates that no child has been born in the continuum for 10 millennia, despite the fact that time appears to have little meaning in the continuum. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard the discussion about that he might be one of the Q. Yeah. So I, I kind of remembered that there was a book, but I didn't realize that Peter David had written it. But mm-hmm. it's still not considered canon, I guess. Right. It was only a novel. But I think it's a very interesting um, concept. And also the fact that some of the stuff that Trelane does in this episode is exactly the sort of stuff that Q pulls on them in Next Generation. You well, know? and I was going to say the whole way of speaking, that petulant, yeah. um, pseudo-pretentious. Yep. Yep, it's exactly the same. And, and the fascination with humans. And that he puts them into these weird situations, and he makes them dress up in costumes, and then mm-hmm. he does a mock trial, which happened more than once. Right. Well, the first episode of TNG is <laughs> yep. Q having a trial. Yep. So it, it's just interesting. I don't think they did that on purpose when they were doing the character of Q, but it is funny to look back and see the parallels there mm-hmm. that, you know, what would a super being do? Well, that's, you know, kind of the obvious thing. So I, it was good. You know, it would have been, I think, the way that they... Um, made a movie out of what happened to Khan. I think it could have been very interesting to make a movie about whatever happened to Trelane, mm-hmm. to have him come back in his more grown-up form or not, you know, right. just to revisit that character and see what, what it was like. Or And it wouldn't have happened to have been a whole movie about him, but just to have to see what had happened to him in the intervening mm-hmm. years. It's kind of cool. It would be. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe they'll still do that one of these days. Um, I have to say that um, I love William Campbell. He's a great actor. Mm-hmm. And he, of course, played the Klingon in um, The Trouble with the Tribbles. Trouble with Tribbles. And then played that same Klingon character in an episode of Deep Space Nine and was really, really good. I haven't seen that episode. It's so good. He's just so wonderful as as the really old Klingon guy mm-hmm. with all this history. I'm going to have to find that so we can watch it someday because it is really good to see all those actors come back and reprise their roles. And I'm not sure what other stuff he's done. I mean, he's been a working actor like forever in Hollywood since At then. one point I was reading stuff about him and I can't remember what it said, but I do remember he was married to, um, I think, Judith Exner, mm-hmm. who was... The Kennedy's Mafia Link's yeah. girlfriend. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I may have this wrong. We might have to go verify that sometime. But I don't I don't know what else he did. Oh, I'm sure he was just one of those actors who worked in TV mm-hmm. forever and ever and ever and did all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But it's really fun to see him. And I also like the fact that he had um, sort of Elvis hair in this with big Elvis sideburns as yep. well. Yep. Yeah. That, it's a really fun episode. It I liked it a lot. And like I said, Kirk is so gorgeous. He looks great. And, you know, Spock was not too annoying. No. Could easily have been annoying, but it wasn't mm-hmm. too annoying. Um, the rest of the cast got to do some stuff, so that was kind of nice. Um, and, of course, you know, Kirk got to save the day, as he always well, does. Well, he's Kirk. <laughs> he's a goddamn captain. He's a goddamn captain. We were just noticing that um, in the shots on the ship, um, Kirk just is looking so pleased with himself. We figured some of them must have been the source for that wonderful um, uh, inspirational thing that Echo made, right? That mm-hmm. says, I'm sorry, I can't hear you over the sound of how awesome I am. Right, because there are several <laughs> moments in this where he's sitting in the command chair looking damn pleased with himself. Very, very it, pleased. I love my job, and I'm so good at it. I am, and I'm the goddamn captain. Yep. And uh, several signatures of the spanking list. Yes, three spanking lists. Where he's saying, Spock, well done. Captain Kirk. Kirk. 
always think of that now. Every time yes. I see oh. it, that's exactly what I'm going to think. Another well thing done. we have in common with Eddie Izzard well done. is we he loves Star Trek, we love Star Trek. Oh, that was so good. Yes. <laughs> I'm really glad we got to watch that. Yeah, I'm glad it came on at the right time, and we got our act together yeah, and watched yeah. it and had our popcorn. So I, I have to say, I think this validates the theory that you had brought up last time that... Um, they're not doing these in any particular order at all. Mm-mm. They're just kind of pulling them out and giving them to the A, the A team or the B team, depending on how much special effects work has to and be done. And whichever one gets done, that's what's that's going out what of the, show. the shoot next. Yep, exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now, while we're talking about the, um, the wonderful gorgeousness of Kirk, <laughs> I want to yes, the gorgeousness. Um, talk for a minute while I bring Captain this up, Kirk, would you? Okay. <laughs> would you? <ya>? Would you? <laughs> Um, I'm wondering if that book by Peter David is any good. You know, I'm, I'm not so into reading Trek novels, but if it was an interesting Trek novel and had some fun stuff to say about Trelane, I might actually think about reading it. But um, again, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure, but I may have actually... You think you have it? No, read the book. Oh, okay. Well, if anybody out there has read that book and would like to give us a book report, yes, I'd very much like to know what happens in it, because I think it'd be very interesting. Yes. Okay, talking about Bill being so gorgeous, um, our friend Idik mm-hmm. sent a picture, a gorgeous picture of Bill under the topic, a pretty, pretty Bill <laughs> pic, and it, it is gorgeous. We'll probably have to post that. But our other good friend, Francine who just has such a way with words, came up with the most fantastic comment. Here's what she said. Bill doesn't make love to the camera. He pushes it down on the bed, flips it over onto its belly, and rips off its panties. (laughs) I agree with that statement 100%. (laughs) Yeah, I think that sums up an awful lot. I agree. I completely agree. That's what he does. Yes. And that's certainly what he was doing in this episode. Yes, and I think, you know, after they knocked off for the day, the camera went out and had a cigarette. I agree. <laughs> now, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but I couldn't help thinking about it while we were watching this episode. Do you think that Bill fucked women in the captain's chair? I know he fucked them in his in his um, trailer. In his trailer. But did he do them in the captain's chair? If he didn't, I bet in light of what Star Trek became, mm-hmm. I bet he wishes he did. Okay. I just... He certainly rubbed up against enough of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just... I, I, I don't think... How could he resist doing that? How could he leave that media unconquered? Yeah. I mean, it's his chair. <laughs> Well, it was just a thought. I was just thinking about it, you know, yeah. seeing him sitting there in his chair, in his big old chair. Yeah, with his spanking list. With his spanking list. His beautifulness. And him Charm being, and hotness. Being the goddamn captain and all. Anyway, just just wondered if anybody had heard anything about that. Yeah. Well, maybe that'll be in his autobiography. Oh, oh wouldn't that be great if he talked about that? Oh, Yeah, my God. if Bill would just spill the beans on all the stuff we want beans spilled on. You know, I think when the book comes out, we're going to have to have a chapter reading. Like, every show, we'll have to read a chapter of it on, on the show. I know what I think we should have. Yeah. And we should talk to our local bookstore about having a William Shatner's autobiography um sleepover party like the the day it comes out and we each get our copies at midnight and with all our friends we're all there at barnes and noble or whatever and and staying up and 
wearing our T-shirts, you know, our Charm and Hotness Intergalactic Stud Mm -hmm. T-shirts, and reading the chapters out loud and swooning. And, of course, the build-up until it happens is we're all sharing our pictures and our stories and, you know, our autographs. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be just too fantastic? bring your iPod and we could watch Star Trek episodes on your iPod. Yes. Yeah. That would be a really good thing. (laughs) I think it would. I think it would, too. Well, we'll have to get on that. Yeah. 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 All right. That wraps it up for Squire of Gothos. Um, Let's take a little break, and then we'll be back with more stuff. Okay. Space. The final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. We want to hear from you. Leave comments at lookathisbutt.blogspot.com. Send email to lookathisbutt at gmail.com. This entire podcast recorded on an Apple PowerBook with GarageBand. This is TSFPN.com, the sci-fi podcast network. you found the best podcasts in the universe. Okay. Ready? Yes. Oh, all right. <laughs> so right it's, it's been a long time since we discussed um, sci-fi, mm-hmm. you know, as a, as a genre rather than specifically Star Trek or Galaxy Quest or anything. And this came to my attention this week because there's a columnist in the San Francisco Chronicle. I read occasionally. His name is John Carroll. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of a grouchy guy, but he's also kind of a fun guy. Mm-hmm. And what he did was print this in full as his column. Um, and it's from Ursula K. Le Guin, well-known science mm-hmm. fiction writer. And it is her response to um, this review now, Mar- Michael Chabon, do you know who mm-hmm. he is? Yes. Okay, he wrote The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Yep, he lives in Berkeley. Oh, okay. And this uh, review came out, came out May 8, 2007 from Ruth Franklin in Slate. Mm-hmm. And this is what Ruth had to say. Michael Chabon has spent considerable energy trying to drag the decaying corpse of genre fiction out of the shallow grave where writers of serious literature abandoned it. Ew. Ew. Pardon moi. Really? So Ursula wrote a wonderful thing called Return of the Genre Zombie, and someone even designed a trash cover (laughs) for her. It rose from its shallow grave to haunt the critics. That's great. And I want to read you what Ursula has to say, because I think it's, it's wonderful. Let's hear it. Something woke her in the night. Was it steps she heard coming up the stairs? Somebody in wet training shoes climbing the stairs very slowly. But who? And why wet shoes? It hadn't rained. There, again, the heavy, soggy sound. But it hadn't rained for weeks. It was only sultry. The air close, with a cloying hint of mildew or rot, sweet rot. Like very old Finocchiona, or perhaps liverwurst gone green. There, again, the slow, squelching, sucking steps. And the foul smell was stronger. Something was climbing her stairs, coming closer to her door. As she heard the click of heel bones that had broken through rotting flesh, she knew what it was. 
but it was dead, dead. God damn that Chabon, dragging it out of the grave where she and the other serious writers had buried it to save serious literature from its polluting touch. The horror of its blank, pustular face. The lifeless, meaningless glare of its decaying eyes. What did the fool think he was doing? Had he paid no attention at all to the endless rituals of the serious writers and their serious critics, the formal expulsion ceremonies, the repeated anathemata, the stakes driven over and over through the heart, the vitriolic sneers, the endless solemn dances on the grave, did he not want to preserve the virginity of Yaddo? Had he not even understood the importance of the distinction between sci-fi and counterfactual fiction? Could he not see that Cormac McCarthy, although everything in his book, except the wonderfully blatant use of an egregiously obscure vocabulary, was remarkably similar to a great many earlier works of science fiction about men crossing the country after a holocaust, could never, under any circumstances, be said to be a sci-fi writer, because Cormac McCarthy was a serious writer, and so by definition, incapable of lowering himself to commit genre. Could it be that that Chabon, just because some mad fools gave him a Pulitzer, had forgotten the sacred value of the word mainstream? <laughs> no. She would not look at the thing that had squelched its way into her bedroom and stood over her, reeking of rocket fuel and kryptonite, creaking like an old mansion on the moors in a wuthering wind, its brain rotting like a pear from within, dripping little gray cells through its ears. <clears throat> but its call on her attention was somehow imperative, and as it stretched out its hands to her, she saw on one of the half-putrefied fingers a fiery golden ring. She moaned. How could they have buried it in such a shallow grave and then just walked away, abandoning it? Dig it deeper, dig it deeper, she had screamed. But they hadn't listened to her. And now where were they, all the other serious writers and critics, when she needed them? Where was her copy of... Ulysses. <laughs> All she had on her bedside table was a Philip Roth novel she had been using to prop up the reading lamp. She pulled the slender volume free and raised it up between her and the ghastly golem. But it was not enough. Not even Roth could save her. The monster laid its squamous hand on her, and the ring branded her like a burning coal. Genre breathed its corpse breath in her face, and she was lost. She was defiled. She might as well be dead. She would never, ever get invited to write for Granta now. <laughs> I think that's an exquisite response. Oh, that's so funny. The Granta dig is hilarious. <laughs> that is really good. I really like the thing about the difference between sci-fi and, what was it? Uh, counterfactual fiction? Yes. Where did that go? Oh. That was really good. Yes, counterfactual fiction. <laughs> and I, I think that that is good because I feel that a number of excellent writers work or have worked in science fiction mm -hmm. or have, have jumped around between realistic novels and counterfactual fiction. Mm -hmm. And that perception that sci-fi is crap makes it really difficult sometimes to recommend some books to non-sci-fi writers oh, because I you agree. have to say... Well, it's got sci-fi elements, but 
Yeah, I agree. And and then, you know, what is it, like, everybody has argued for a long time, how do you actually define what science fiction is? And we both read this books. So we both read The Sparrow and Children of God, you know. Mm-hmm. In my book, those are science fiction books. Yes. Even though the actual science fiction-y part of it is pretty small, mm-hmm. but it's the premise on which those books are built. That right. That somehow humanity finds a way to get off this earth and go to another galaxy, another solar system. And if you don't have that, then you don't have the book. And they don't do it by magic. Right. They do it by science. Well, and in my opinion, just about any book set in the future is sci-fi. Yeah. In some way. Mm -hmm. And people have tried to come up with other ways. I I know a lot of people prefer speculative fiction Mm -hmm. as opposed to science fiction, especially for things that have less science about them. But it's the same thing. You know, it's a what-if story. Well, and really... It's almost hard to, to say what isn't speculative fiction. Yeah. Because if I make up a character who uh, lives in World War II and various things happen to him, I'm speculating. Mm-hmm. You know, unless you're writing factual stuff, it's all speculative fiction. You're mm-hmm. making up people, circumstances, events, even if they take place in real time, real places. Mm-hmm. You're making it up. I agree. I agree. And I I really um, admire Ursula for slamming him back in the face with some really classy, classy writing. Oh, she's such a good writer. But, I mean, uh, who says that science fiction is a dead genre? I mean, since when? Yeah. There are so many books that, that sell now. I think science fiction books sell more than they ever did. When you have people like um, Orson Scott Card, who write books that sell in the millions, and people mm-hmm. like Robert Jordan. I mean, some of his stuff kind of crosses over into fantasy, but I right. think most people would consider that science fiction. And he's written how many now? It's like 13 in his series, and each of them sells like millions and millions of copies. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why someone would think that um, science fiction is not a genre that, that exists anymore. Yeah. Well, and they're generally saying the corpse of genre fiction, so they're not even class, you know, limiting it to sci-fi. They're, you know, they're saying um, uh, fantasy, mystery is a is a is a genre. Westerns, westerns, romance. Yeah, all I mean, all fiction is genre, really. Yeah, it's just, but apparently, it's a huge insult to to uh, classify a serious writer as a genre. So, what's a serious writer? Someone who doesn't laugh. Yeah, yeah. Someone who writes books that nobody reads. Like Ulysses. (laughs) (laughs) Philip Roth. I actually did read one of his books, and there had been a big uh, hoopla and praise for it, and I thought it was uh, not all that special. Well, uh, I think I've only read one Philip Roth book, which was Portnoy's Complaint. Oh, I I read two then. Because I wanted to see what the sex stuff was. Right, yeah. And then I was like, wow, are guys really this obsessed with sex? (laughs) No, the other one I read was uh, The Plot Against America. Yeah? Was that any good? No, not really. (laughs) Not all that good. Certainly not, you know, riveting. Mm -hmm. But, And it was speculative fiction. Oh, because it didn't really happen. Right. Actually, speculative fiction is redundant, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. pretty much. Pretty much. Pretty much. Oh, well, that's just a reviewer being stupid and taking a cheap shot. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to me. Yeah, Slate is usually better than that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was, I was, I was surprised, but I really have to uh, salute John Carroll for just you know basically setting up the premise and then just printing Ursula's thing. I'm going to assume he got permission. Yeah. Uh, but it it's. It's a wonderful statement. 
Yeah. And, and it's very well, well I, written. I agree. I which agree. Which does not surprise me. It, it's, it's one of those things where um, it, it definitely feels like the sledgehammer to kill the, the, the gnat. But that's okay mm-hmm. because the end result is so an, good. It's, so it's good. such an annoying gnat. Yes. <laughs> and if it gives a wonderful writer a chance like her to actually let loose and do something like mm-hmm. that, that yep. is a good thing. So I, I found that entertaining and worth sharing. I agree. I'm yeah. glad that you, you, you drug that up. Yeah. <laughs> Along with a decaying corpse. I mean, it, it was messy work. I know. I, I think that the illustration that you were showing me oh. is, is actually perfect, and it fits what she's written exactly. Yes, and uh, on the, the back page of this, it, it tells you... Who did the illustration? Cover illustration, artwork, and interior layout by Bellatrice. Oh. And... Uh, I don't know who that is. They did a, a lovely, lovely job. It is. It's great. The return of the genre and zombie. It's supposed to look like an old book, too. It's got some creases in mm-hmm. the corners. Yeah. Kind of that faded look to it. It's really wonderful. It's great. <laughs> to haunt the critics. Jeez. So, anyway, that was that was very That was really great. Um, speaking of writing, um, I know that the, uh, the fan lib contest is still going on. <gasps> people are all over that. Yeah. Well, I don't know how many people are all over that. <laughs> but, um, you know, while, while we were chatting, I, w- I happened to pop onto FanLib, and I was just going to see um, if they had any samples of, uh, oh, okay. of some of the writing. So maybe we so should just... From the sublime to the ridiculous. From the sublime to the ridiculous. I wanted to see if there were any, any things. Oh, I don't want to hear this. Oh, no, no, don't talk. Don't talk. Don't talk. To Don't talk. Time. You could win an iPhone. Want more Star Trek fan stories? Featured winner. Let's see. Oh, somebody won something. Oh, what'd they win? A t-shirt? I don't know. Probably. I don't know what he won. It doesn't say. Got a lot of comments. Oh, it's written in script form. Well, yeah, that's what they want you to write. Oh, okay. Is, is, is oh, they want you to write scripts, yeah. Oh, well, it's a story with Picard and Kirk and Worf and a bunch of other people in the same scene. Well, it is supposed to be um, a Kirk versus Picard thing. Yeah. Ugh. Oh, I don't think I have time. Oh, look what they did. It's got, <laughs> let's see, here are all the players. Kirk, McCoy. Uh-huh. Scotty, Picard, Worf, and Kirk at the same place. And Gary Seven. Uh, You know, that's one of those episodes, the Gary Seven one, that you're going to have to sort of twist my arm to get me to watch. Oh, and it's got data and older data in it, too. It's also got a voice. And a voice. Oh, you know, it's got time travel in it. Well, that's pretty much going to happen if you're... You know... Doing a Kirk versus Picard. Let me just say, I've had it with time travel. (laughs) Have you? I really have. I am really, really tired of people using time travel as the the deus ex machina to fix things in stories or Mm -hmm. to make stuff happen. I think it's an easy way out, and it's just... Instead of bothering to think of a real plot for something or the way something can happen, oh, let's just say time travel did it. Yeah. I think it's really bad. And the thing is, when time travel is, is... is done well. It's 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 mind blowing. Yeah. And how often does that happen? Well, well, not all that often, but you know, <laughs> I mean, one of my absolute favorite novels is um, Beauty mm-hmm. by Sherry Tepper, 
and that involves time travel. But that book, it, it, to my way of thinking, just just breaks all boundaries, ties all sort of things together. It's fantasy, it's sci-fi, it's, mm-hmm. and. I just recently reread it, which is why it's kind of on my mind. But it's also one of those books that has time travel that doesn't give me a headache. <laughs> because there's something about me about conceptualizing. And time mm-hmm. travel causes me to mentally trip on my own feet mm-hmm. when they go back and forth too many times. And what happened first and what actually didn't happen first. And this this doesn't get messy like that. Oh, okay. So I can think of one other book that, that I really like that had really good time travel. And it's called Time and Again. And I can't remember the author's name. It's Jack... Uh, Finney. Jack Finney. Oh, that's a great book. Um, I'll tell you how great that book is. My husband and I own two copies of it. <laughs> and every time we go through the books going, okay, what are we giving away? What are we getting rid of? He says, well, we've got two copies of this. I go, no. Because if we get a divorce, I don't want us to fight over <laughs> who gets time and again. So I, I can hardly recommend that as a great example of time travel. And, and it's time travel and a mystery story yeah. and a great... And a romance. Romance and, unfortunately, have you ever read the sequel to it? No. Oh, is it bad? It's bad. Oh, okay. I, well, bad. I never will then. Stick oh. with that. He's written some other great stuff. Uh-huh. He wrote um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And um, I actually have a book of short stories of his. I'd be glad to lend oh, it to I'd you. Oh, I'd love to read that. It doesn't have the sequel to Time and Again in it. Okay, good. I'd like to. I'd like to not read that and read yeah. the other stuff. So, so time and again is a story about time travel that's accomplished through purely mental means. Yes, and it has to happen in very precise circumstances, and there is no explanation for it really, mm-hmm. which is okay. I mean, in the context of the story, it's somebody discovers that this works and it does work, and you just have to accept that and get yep. on with the story. And I love that. And it's also um, blatantly ripped off. By that stupid Christopher Reeve movie, Moment in Time. Oh, yes. Which is a horrible movie. So mm-hmm. if you've seen that, don't let that put you off of this because it's much better. Another really, really good time travel book, mm-hmm. I think, is called To Say Nothing of the Dog oh, I was by just Connie gonna, Willis. I was just going to bring that up. Yeah. She's such a fantastic writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love her whole And remake is, in a way, a time travel story with a really incredible twist also mm-hmm. by her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I think those are the exceptions to the rule. And, and I, I mean, in general, I think in Trek, they did a really bad job with time travel mm-hmm. in almost all of the stories, with very few exceptions. Um, probably um, The Guardian of Forever, you know. That, that was acceptable. Like, yeah, I was like, going to say, that's the exception. That was the one exception. But, you know, they did it in, in Tomorrow is Yesterday, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or Captain the, Christopher. Captain Christopher, or is that right. Yesterday's Enterprise? No. No, Yesterday's <laughs> Enterprise is a, um, is a book. Oh, is it? See, I can't even keep these fucking things straight. But um, in Tomorrow is Yesterday, it was the first time that they had done that thing with the, you know, accidentally traveling back through time, and it was very effective. But then it was like they were doing it every other episode. Well, the man was a menace. You know? <laughs> That's the other exception, Zip-zip-zip-zip. is Trials and Tribulations. Oh, okay. Trials and Tribulations. That was the other With one. With the time cop. But, you know, the rest of it was like, oh, my God, let's just, you know, drop of a hat, let's travel through mm-hmm. time. Yeah, but you know what? I got to point out one thing. They have an even more misused, misused and stupid gimmick. The transporter? The holodeck. The holodeck, okay. Yeah, I'd agree with you there. Yeah. I'd agree with you. Actually, the other episode where they did a really good job with time travel was the TNG one where they were playing poker. 
and then <gasps> yes. whatever that one was called. And it has Kelsey Grammer. And it has Kelsey Grammer. That, that is, is really a good. good one. And and that was done in a way where it wasn't it wasn't casual. The whole time travel element wasn't mm-hmm. really casual. It was like this maddening thing. And that was kind of the point of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Was that it, you, was, you couldn't wrap your mind around it, yeah. and it was going to fuck everything up if you didn't get it exactly right. So, again, exceptions. But the other ones, too much. So thumbs up or thumbs down on the time travel in um, Voyage Home? The whales. Wow, that's a good question. I mean, I really, really like that movie. Mm-hmm. I think the time travel aspect is kind of stupid because, again, it's very casual. It's like, mm-hmm. hey, let's go back in time and get some whales. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, get some for me, too. Yeah. It, it's <laughs> Fortunately, it's not a movie that takes itself very seriously. Yeah. So that saves it. That helps. If they had played it any straighter and tried to make it all dramatic and angsty and, mm-hmm. and, and we have to save the world kind of thing, it would have sucked a lot. Yep. Now, here's a, a question. Yes. As far as I know, um, no subsequent Trek ever referred to or brought up or used Guardian of Forever again. Except for New Voyages. <laughs> okay, they don't count. So, and I've seen some, some discussion online about um, what would happen. I mean, that's really an incredible weapon. Yeah. If you can go back and change time, yeah. if you knew what you're doing. So what do you think? Do you think the the, the, the Federation sort of uh, quarantined that area and patrols it and keeps everybody away, keeps it a secret? I think they do. I think that, that it's like... Do you um, think they occasionally use it? I don't know. I think it's like Talos Four, where they put up a big perimeter around it and people aren't allowed to go there under penalty of death, as we find out. But in Talos Four, we also find out... That it's a rule, but there's nobody patrolling the area to keep you out of there. And I'm thinking, this is so much more dangerous that you'd have to have a starship. I mean, it would be part of those routine assignments. You're patrolling the neutral zone this month, and next month they take you off that, and you patrol the Guardian Forever system. Yeah. Well, I I would guess, the Federation being the Federation, that um, they probably said to everybody it's off limits but they actually have people down there who are studying it. Yeah, they have scientists down there who are uh, supposed to be observing now i know there's there have been novels written really um that use that yeah. that idea of scientists observing it but there's also a novel there there are there are two novels and i'm forgetting the the exact plot of the the first one but somehow i believe Spock manages to go back in time to Zarabeth, mm-hmm. and she has a son, mm-hmm. his son. And um, the son comes back with Spock, I believe, in the second novel, or comes back. And the reason I remember it is because the cover of the novel is just a hoot. It's, is, um, is his name Spam? No, unfortunately. <laughs> I can't think what his, his name is. Um, Zara Spock or something. <laughs> Spock or Ross. <laughs> Spockabeth. Um, it's, you know, the Guardian of Forever, you know, the big round donut, uh-huh. with Spockabeth not leaving through it or walking through it, but riding through it with a big sword on a white horse. Does the horse have wings? <laughs> I'm thinking not, but I'm going to have to dig around and see if I can find it because it covers oh, a hoop. Oh my god, that's hilarious. <laughs> hey, speaking of trivia. Is it a unicorn? No, I don't think it is. Is it a talking horse? <laughs> yes, yes, you hit on it. Oops, spoiler, there's a talking horse. 
name is Bill. Bill the Pony. Because <laughs> he stopped off to pick him up, too. Um, okay, the Star Trek trivia. Yeah. What Star Trek novel does have a, a flying horse? A talking horse. A flying horse. <laughs> a flying horse in a Star Trek novel? Yep. You're going to um, love this. None that I've read. You're going to laugh. But it's actually one of my favorites. Really? Not the novel itself, but the first two or three chapters I adore. Okay. And it is um, Enterprise, The First Adventure. Uh-huh. And it is a novel about when Kirk first takes command uh-huh. of the Enterprise, the, the first adventure. And what I like about the first few chapters is we see him, you know, at the taking command ceremony. So we also get a glimpse of his brother, Sam, and his mother. Uh-huh. And I, I think that kind of influenced my whole characterization mm-hmm. of them. But um, you also see the first time he and Spock meet, and they don't think much of each other, uh-huh. and it's a lot of fun. But the first assignment, and Kirk is very put out that this is their first assignment, their shakedown cruise or whatever, is that they are the transportation for a space carnival. <laughs> <laughs> and the space carnival has a Mary Sue who has a flying horse. Oh, my God. That's and they hilarious. have to let the horse like hang out in one of the big... A uh-huh. shuttle deck, so it can uh-huh. fly around and everything. Get its exercise. Yeah. So its wings don't become atrophied. Right. <laughs> right. I can't remember what happens, but like I say, I don't... The, the flying horse, the space carnival, Mary Sue, the whole thing. No. But the first few chapters, I just love. Uh, is Mitchell there being a big pain in the ass? <gasps> no. Oh, this is the other interesting thing about this novel. Um, Mitchell... Okay. Okay. You know how Kirk was supposedly the... Uh, the commander of the Lydia Sutherland, mm-hmm. and, um, and that ship got blown up in a battle, mm-hmm. Battle of Geogi. <laughs> 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 and Mitchell was his first officer then. Uh-huh. Well, Mitchell is not in this because Mitchell is still recovering oh. from his injuries. But the novel begins with Kirk thinking about Mitchell. Oh, of course wait, it does. wait. So when my husband went to Paris for the first time, mm-hmm. and he, he went without me, um, he bought a book because he wanted to bring me something. He bought a Star Trek novel in French, in French, at a flea market. And it's a big, giant flea market that he insists is called Klingon Court. <laughs> it is not pronounced Klingon, but that he bought it from Klingon Court, and it is Star Trek uh, Le Premier Aventure or whatever. Wow. And so, and of course, it's much longer than it is in English. <laughs> but you open it up, and the the first sentence is Gary No. <laughs> So I have it in both French and English. Ooh, hey, Gary Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> that is very funny. Mm-hmm. I did not know that. I didn't, yep. know you, I didn't know you had a French Star Trek novel. I do. That is great. Maybe we should read some of it on the show. <laughs> do you speak French? Not very well. I, I can order in a restaurant. Oh, that's better than I can do now. No, it, when I order in a restaurant, it is, uh, bonjour. Uh, s'il vous plaît, je voudrais, and then I read it right off the menu. That, well, that's good. And that's I taught safe. that to my my sister when she was in Paris too, and it, it works like a charm. Oh, that's good. Yeah, uh, I, I'm usually pretty good conversationally with sort of comment ça va, uh-huh. ça va bien. Well, this is one of my my proudest <laughs> moments in Paris. We were staying in a, a, a residential neighborhood, not the tourist area. Mm-hmm. And I'm walking down the street, and a, a young woman came up to me, obviously asking where something was. And you want to know what I said? Je ne parle pas français. 
I knew you were going to say that. I said it in French. I was so pleased with myself. You know, one of the first things I learned... And then I said, Gary, no. (laughs) One of the first things I learned to say in Japanese was, please excuse my horrible Japanese. (laughs) Good move. Good move. Um, You know, I, I was just thinking, I would love to see... Um, like a clip montage of the way the original series has been dubbed into other languages, just to see the guys who do Kirk in other languages to see <laughs> what they sound like. Can you imagine in French? I was just thinking about that, actually. And Bill speaks French. Oh, wouldn't it have been great if he had dubbed himself in French? <gasps> wouldn't oh. it be great to hear him do, I don't know, well, Risk is his business, of course, but I'm thinking more of some of the great romantic moments. Oh, the scene with Helen Noel, the fantasy scene yes, with Helen. that would have been great. You want me to wrap it up for you like a Christmas present? <laughs> I could just imagine Bill... Un cadeau. Bill <laughs> de Noel. Um, <laughs> I could just imagine, because Bill caresses words yes. in such a way. Oh, that would be words. hilarious. Really? That would be really oh. cool. Well, one can only hope. But anyway, I, I would really like to know what the guys who do Kirk in other languages sound like. Yeah. What his voice is like. Yeah. Whether they, they try to do Shatner or whether they just do Kirk. I don't know. Um, maybe maybe some of our listeners abroad can enlighten us. Well, I know in some countries it's, um, what do you call it's it? subtitled? Subtitled. Really? Yeah, because um, I had a, a Trek friend in Sweden. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was talking about a particular EVE, and and she said something like, "Damn Swedish television ran the subtitle right across oh. it." Wouldn't it be funny if they dubbed it like into Australian? <laughs> Good night, <Good> mate. <laughs> That's what you say instead of Kirk here. Right. Good night. <laughs> that would be very funny. Well, we've certainly strayed far from our serious discussion of serious genre and serious well, literature. you know, the conversation goes where it, it will. It goes where it goes, and in this case, it went to France. And it, it went to France. So, uh, well, maybe maybe we could ask Bill to do some stuff in French. Oh. I think that would be great. Well, we do have that thing. We know how to say look at his butt. Yeah, that's true. I can't remember it in French. I can remember it in Spanish, though, because of David Arroyo. Mm-hmm. Mira el culito! <laughs> Okay, well, I think that's it. I think that's probably it. Okay. Au revoir. Au revoir, and we will be back the next time with some more. <laughs> <laughs> the next time. <laughs> oh, good. I'm here with, then this has been. This is now Python French. With Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I was thinking about Python, and I was thinking about the scene with the, the knights on the. The castle up there. And I will touch you again. Oh no, no, not that part. I just love the part where um, he says, "We've already got a Grail." And <laughs> he says, They've already got one. He says, "Are you sure?" Oh yes, it's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I keep thinking of I will touch you another time or one more time because my dog likes to taunt you with his oh, his toys. You that's know, true. to show them to you, and then nip away yeah. and. And so he taunts. There is something about John Cleese doing a French accent. And then, oh, of course, I was thinking about the Mr. Very nice. Mr. Creosote sketch. <laughs> him trying to urge that one little piece on. <laughs> oh, monsieur, it's wafer thin. <laughs> <laughs> Just one more bite. Okay. 
Okay. Okay. We have to stop this now. So um, do all your homework. We give you a lot of homework over the last couple of shows, so do your homework and send us in answers. Yeah, summer is not your time to just lazy around. Right. And uh, so we'll be back next time with, with even more, and maybe by then um, there'll be some stuff out on the web that we can review. Okay, we were just sort of Googling around and looking at bad fanfic, and this this person's writing so transcends bad fanfic, it, it's one of those things that's so bad it's good. It's a genre unto itself. It is. Um, and apparently we are fans unto ourselves, too, because every time we try to share the wonder of this with other people, they're like, please stop. <laughs> but <laughs> we adore it. We adore it. So the, the author's name... It's a, a three three name name, um, which probably means he's a serial killer, but that's okay. Um, his name is Andrew Troy Keller, and we've been reading his fan fiction for almost ten years now, yes. I think. And we were just trying to find out if he's still writing. And as we were googling his name, this story came up, and and this was I remember this story. Very I hard. don't remember this one, but the thing is, it's very difficult to distinguish his stories because yes. he's remarkably prolific. He writes in all fandoms. But basically, he's written, I think, maybe two or three actual things, and he cuts and pastes yeah. and just changes the character names. Mm-hmm. So, um, Lena is going to read this out oh, loud I am? to okay. us. Yes. So, this is called Makeshift Hut. It's um, a TOS story, um, and the pairing is uh, Khan and Marla MacGyvers, and you may remember that they did, in fact, get it on in the original episode. And it's very short. So, let's see if I can read this with a straight face. I don't know if I can. And I'm going to read it exactly as it is written on the page. It had started on star date 3141.9 when the USS Enterprise, NCC-1701, had come upon an old-style pre-warp sleeper ship known, at, known as the SS Botany Bay, which had contained several bodies in stasis. Amongst these bodies was a genetically engineered strongman named Khan Noonien Singh, who has also been one of the great leaders of Earth's eugenic wars of the 1990s. Although he had disappeared without a trace back then, once Khan was aroused from his long sleep, he had soon revealed his, the ambition, strength, and intelligence that had helped him conquer a quarter of Earth. Once aboard the Enterprise, Khan had quickly befriended the beautiful Lieutenant Marla MacGyvers, the ship's historian who has a passion for strong-willed leaders, and together with his Botany Bay crew and new companion, Khan had seized control of the ship by capturing the engine room. But then, before it was too late... <laughs> Marla had great misgivings about her newfound loyalties and helped Captain James T. Kirk and Commander Spock regain control of the ship by flooding it with gas. (laughs) (laughs) They just pressed their foot down to the pedal and... (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. No editorializing. After Khan and his men were overtaken, Kirk had punished them by exiling them along with Marla to a planet where they had to start life anew. That planet was SETI Alpha 5, and as soon as they had arrived on the planet's surface, both Khan and Marla had looked around and saw how lush and beautiful it actually was. I am sorry about what I had done back aboard the ship, Khan, said Marla, after she had placed a gentle hand on Khan's shoulders. It's just that I couldn't just stand by and watch another human being get hurt. And after he had looked at Marla and saw that she was indeed still the same woman that he had befriended aboard the Enterprise. (laughs) Wow! Khan had placed a gentle hand on her cheek and said, I understand, my darling Marla, and I would never dare harm, for you are indeed the most beautiful woman in the universe. Aren't you going to do a Khan accent? No. Oh, okay. 
And then after they had looked at each other for a minute or two, both Khan and Marla had kissed each other ever so passionately on the lips. <laughs> and after the botany... And, this is like the Bible. And after the Botany Bay exiles had finally gotten their little colony into working op- operation, Marla had joined Khan inside her makeshift hut for some dinner. There's the title. Right yeah, there. yeah. Makeshift hut. And after they had finished eating, a starry-eyed Marla moved herself closer to Khan. <laughs> Placed her hand on his chest and said, Was it a gentle hand? No, just a, just a hand. I love you, Khan, and I'll always love you with all of my heart. I love you too, Marla, said Khan, after he had placed a gentle hand on Marla's chin. For what I had said is true, you're the most beautiful woman in the universe. And with that, the two time-crossed lovers had once again kissed each other ever so passionately on the lips. (laughs) Now he's cutting and pasting within the same story. (laughs) A few minutes later, after they had removed all of their clothes and placed their nude bodies on the makeshift bed... Okay, here comes the smut. So if you don't want to hear this, turn the podcast off. It gets really filthy in about two seconds. Khan had started licking all over Marla's body, all the way down to her hot, wet pussy. Ah, yes, that's it, said Marla, while Khan was caressing her firm breasts. Touch me, touch me there. Ah! She's screaming. (laughs) At that moment, Marla had suddenly realized that she was experiencing something that she had never experienced with someone from another time era before. (laughs) That is in every story. She was experiencing pure, Pure untamed erotica. (laughs) (laughs) And enjoying every minute of it. Well, who wouldn't? A few minutes later, after Khan had placed his stiff cock inside Marla's asshole, he had used each of his hands to caress both her breasts and pussy. Beyond Gumby sex. I know. Okay, so this is all caps. Ah, yes, that's it. Do it, Con. She <laughs> yelled a sexually energized Marla. Fuck me. Ravage me. I don't give a shit. Please, my lord Con, let me be your bitch. Arg. <laughs> it's just like in the Holy Grail. Arg. <laughs> And then, after they had moved harder and faster, and their lovemaking had reached its final star cluster... He always comes up with a a strange metaphor for orgasm. The two lovers had come and collapsed due to exhaustion. After they were able to catch their breath, Marla had placed her head on Khan's chest, took a deep breath, and said, I love you, Khan, and I really do want to be with you, forever. And so you shall, Marla, said Khan, while running his gentle fingers through her hair, for I want you to be my wife. And after she had heard that, Marla had looked at Khan, let out a smile, and said, Oh yes, Khan, I will be your wife. Then, after they had snuggled up to each other, both Khan and Marla had fallen asleep in each other's naked arms. Just then, a month later, Khan... (laughs) (laughs) That is brilliant, isn't it? Let me read that again. Just then, a month later... Khan Noonien Singh had taken Marla MacGyvers as his wife, and at first it looked like they were going to live happily ever after. But that was before five months later. <laughs> that's it. That's my favorite line. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. But that was before five months later, when the neighboring planet Seta Alpha Six had exploded and caused everything on Seta Alpha Five. Seta Alpha. 
SETI Alpha 5 to be laid waste and a new type of animal, the mind-controlling SETI eels, to appear on the now-wasted planet. But of course, with the aid of those eels, Khan would gain control of the USS Reliant and seek revenge against now-Admiral James C. Kirk by attempting to steal the Genesis device, the creation of Kurt's old flame, Dr. Carol Marcus, and her son David. But of course, that was another story. The end. <laughs> I love he that. got all of his 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 trademark uh, stuff in there. That is so good. But that was before five months later. Just um, then, just a then, month, month later. later. <laughs> so cherry. Oh, I love it. That was awesome. That was, and I I had never read that one before. I've read that same stuff in many other stories. Oh yes, yes. Just then, a month later. So that's a little taste of Andrew Troy Keller for you. Mm-hmm. We'll try to dig up some other stories. I think we should read the other story. The um. The Miramani story, because that's a good one, too. <laughs> that's the one that I sent him feedback on, and he yes. wrote back correcting me. Yes, that was the one that had, it was the most erotic moment of erotica that the tribe had ever witnessed, yeah. or something like that. <laughs> yep. yep, so bravo, Andrew. We're we so, are your fans. We are your fans, and if you're out there, you know, send us an email. 